Troy Williamson, perfect fight, etc. So we gave him that warm-up fight, and then now we move forward into the big fight. Again, unbelievable platform for him in Dublin. His management, his training team said, yes, perfect, perfect fight, let's do it. But Keevan just felt like he needed another run out. And I can't, like I said this in interviews the other day, I, it's nothing against Keevan, I just can't do, keep doing run outs, that no, like one-sided fights that no one's interested in. And if Keevan feels like he needs a run out, I respect that. And I, I don't, I'm not saying he doesn't need a run out, but after having a run out last time and agreeing that the plan was a run out and then a proper fight, I just can't do a run out and then another run out and then we're going next because I've got fighters and, and it, it comes back on me. This is not about Keevan, this is about like my cards. Because I make a fight, when I create an undercard, I want you guys to go, that is a great undercard, that is a great fight. And the fight that he's asking for is not a great fight, it's a one-sided fight. And it's going to cost me money that I don't want to spend. So I need guys that are ready to fight. And if, if he doesn't feel like he's ready to fight Troy Williamson in Dublin in front of 10,000, then we're on a different page. Hey, and welcome back to the to the number one podcast in the sport where we rarely get it wrong. So let's let's just jump straight into it. If you if you go back, like I'll buy a beer for whoever can remember what episode I said it in, where I told you. Once the Saudis had control of the belts, it would be easier to make an undisputed fight. And I also said to you, the Saudis only cared about the belts. So anyone who didn't have belts wasn't getting their phone calls answered. And here we are. Um, Fury and Usyk signed, apparently. But we, let's contextualize this, because I had to do some digging around. Here's what that means. Team Fury have been given their terms... Team Usyk have been given their terms. They have been told there is no negotiation. Take it or leave it. If this doesn't happen, we're going to move away from boxing. But we want to make this happen. And so they've both been... It's been dictated to them. Because the Saudis are smart. As long as they can offer $1 more than Vegas or the UK can generate, they're not really that bothered. And then they'll add a premium on it to secure the key assets. So what does this mean? It means that a lot of people are just left in the cold. That's what it really means. It also means you're going to see a lot of people in British boxing heading out with their begging bowls. And they're going to head out with their begging bowls because they just believe, they believe two things, and these are both erroneous. One, that money's just flowing like water. And two, the Saudis care about boxing. So we're going to come back to the actual fight itself, but let's just give you the context so you understand Middle Eastern business culture, Saudi business culture, etc., etc. And I can only speak from the interactions I've had with business people from the Middle East. That's Saudi, um, the Emirates, obviously, GCC countries. Uh, let's include Iran in the Middle East, Iraq, um, even Yemen to an extent, Oman. So I, I know the region reasonably well. I have a lot of friends there. Um, and obviously having worked in the banking sector in the region, I kind of understand how these things operate. So we're just going to break it down chunk by chunk so you guys understand. So let's start with the source of the money. So for context, Saudi Arabia, because of the oil price rise in recent years, like relative to 2020, right? So 2020, oil was like minus $8 a barrel. 
we're well above that now. I mean, we're, we're in a good place. Like, I'm not going to say historic highs, but these are the levels where if you're an oil-producing country, you can start to spend more comfortably and not worry. And I, I assume that if they needed to, they could just contract supply and push it up. The, the war in Ukraine actually ended up making Saudi Arabia richer because people without access to Russian oil have to go to traditional markets and that pushes the price up. So there's a parallel market. So there's a market that is Russian oil, and that's got one price. And then international markets that have another strike price. Now, if you're smart, you're just arbitraging between Russian oil and Western market oil, if you're brave enough to do that. But essentially, just need to understand, oil is more expensive than the Saudis had factored in. That means they have more money to do stuff with. So the question is, what is that stuff that they have to do? This is where people need to really pay attention if you want to understand the, the games that are happening at the moment. There's an assumption that Arabs spend money on things that don't make sense, right? They're garish, they're gaudy, they're showy with their money, this, that, and the third. And that's not true, right? And I'll give you an example of this so, so you understand. So I once saw a payment that had to be approved for it was something ridiculous, like 2.8 million. And it covered seven Rolls-Royce Phantoms or something like that and a drophead, right? Like, it may have been more actually. But essentially, it was just for a ton of Rolls-Royces. And I asked the question... Um, to a friend of mine, I said, hold on, why do you, why? And I, my reaction was, oh, this is just needlessly showy, and it was like, no, no, that is one car for every wife, and every wife has to have the same standard, right, and then there's one car for him, so these cars are to take the wife where they need to go, and to take the kids to school where the kids need to go, and suddenly I realized that's quite a practical purchase. If I, had, if I had multiple wives and I had to look after multiple wives, the, the rights and wrongs of that aren't for the purpose, aren't the purpose of this conversation, but if I had multiple wives, I'd also have to do that. So that's actually a really practical thing. And then considering your status in society, it has to be a Rolls Royce. So something that looks crazy on the outside because we can't comprehend that sort of expenditure is actually quite practical when you've got the money. And so I say all of that just to say that they're actually really practical people. So even like a gold Lamborghini, it's a wrap. It's not that expensive. But when you pull up to a business meeting in a Lamborghini, there's a certain amount of respected engenders. And that can be the difference between someone trying to force you to pay $5 million over the odds or you paying fair market price. So all of these things are unbelievably practical. The Middle East is unbelievably practical. So then we go, why boxing? And, I, and I've said this numerous times. The Saudis generally don't care about boxing. Okay? So the Saudis don't care about Jordan Granham. I do. I like him. Good boxer. Good journeyman. The Saudis don't care about Robbie Chapman. I do. Lovely guy. Hope I see him today. The Saudis don't care about... Let's pick a name. Kamil Sokolowski. They don't care about Nathan Heaney. 
They don't care about Brad Paul. They don't care about boxing. They care about Olympic gold medals. In fact, silver and bronze will do for now. And they care about world championships. And just to illustrate this point, if you can go to Saudi Arabia and go, I have a program here that will get you Olympic gold in boxing within three Olympic cycles. So let's say, let's just say, yeah, by 2032, you will have Olympic medalists. The Saudis would invest in that, right? Because they care about the medals. The medals mean something because it brings pride to the country and it's a strategic asset. You can always say we had a gold medalist. It means something. If I go to Saudi and say we can make this undisputed fight happen, they're going to say, how are you going to do this? Well, my fight has got three belts. I have a good relationship with the guy who's got the other belt. And then the Saudis go, well, we're going to sign you up and we're going to sign them up. Now we've got control of the belts, but everyone's going to eat. Because what we want is those belts and we want that fight. We want to own that. And we'll pay to own that. Because then it's Saudi-driven, Saudi-controlled, and all of that good stuff. It's a strategic asset, right? So Fury versus Usyk is a strategic asset. It's no different to them buying something like a Harrods, or them buying the Shard, or them buying Wembley Stadium. It's a strategic asset. It shines light on the kingdom and portrays the kingdom in a strong light. Um, you saw the prince came out swinging, saying, we don't care about sport washing. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I can push my GDP up by 1.5%, I don't care about sport washing. And they don't, because they're very, very practical and pragmatic. So now contrast this, right? You've got Fury and Usyk. <clears throat> um, one man that speaks too much English, and another man that barely speaks English. And we've been told for a long time that that fight would never sell globally. The Saudis know that, they don't care. On the other side of the line, you've got Joshua and Wilder who, if they had the belts, would be the perfect fight. And that's why the Saudis kept them in play. Just kept, yeah, 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 we'd make this fight, we'd make this fight. But it wasn't a strategic asset. Joshua's not a strategic asset. Neither is Wilder at the moment. Because on the other side of the line, in Fury and Usyk are two men that beat them handily. So these are not a strategic asset. And that means that Hearn's calls don't get answered because he doesn't have a strategic asset. When he had Canelo... He had a strategic asset. Now he doesn't. So Hearn, as much as he won't talk about this publicly, Hearn is now like, I need to find a strategic asset. To the point where if you were Eddie Hearn, you'd, pay, you'd offer Crawford the deal you offer Joshua. Here, have equity in the zone. Just come out with us. Here's three fights we need you to have in Saudi. And then you can pitch that as, look, this is the best boxer on the planet right now. Strategic asset. We're going to have him here do his whole camp here, do some outreach in Saudi, help inspire the next generation. Then, you, then you're then you offering value back. The problem you had with, let's go back, and this is what people don't understand. Joshua versus Ruiz too. From, from what I have heard, the Saudis thought they were going to get a stronger card. They thought, okay, we've got Joshua versus Ruiz, but Eddie Hearn's going to stack the the undercard, so we're going to get a good night. This is going to be a night where the world watches. And Hearn did what British promoters and American promoters, uh, it's probably British promoters, he just thinned out the card and went, they'll just take any old rubbish. That was his mentality. That's that, 
that Brentwood private school privilege. Right? He'll just take anything. And so they gave him another chance with the Ruiz 2 fight. And that was garbage too. And then Joshua went off script, if you remember. And then society's like, well, we don't need to deal with this guy. Because one, he doesn't deliver the quality that we need. Right? Like, there's no entertainment factor. The fight happened, it wasn't great. Second fight happened, it wasn't great. Um, he had the meltdown. And they just were like, Hearn's not the guy. Right? And they said, we can do this ourselves. And they were seeing what was happening with the WWE, which is a fast, slicker operation, delivers what it promises, bang, done. Looked at the crossover stuff and said, we can do all of this. And so the Saudis said, well, let's take more, more and more control over what we put out product-wise and demand a bit more. And so that's why you're seeing, actually, with the Usyk Fury fight, that that card's looking pretty healthy. Um, I don't think Bacoli versus Takam is a bad fight. I think that's a good gateway fight for Bacoli to then be calling out guys like Joyce and Hergovic and that sort of level. Like, look, if Bacoli looks good against Takam, why doesn't he call out Gilles Zhang? So the Saudis were disappointed in Hearn, right? Because Hearn was going around saying he was their guy, this, that, and the third, but he wasn't because he never really delivered for them. They wanted the strategic asset, which was the undisputed fight. And Hearn kept dragging it out because he was trying to protect, you know, his cash cow. And so what's happened behind the scenes is Team Fury have said, look, we'll come. If you can get Usyk to play ball, we'll come and do it here, man. We need that money. And so that's what's happened now. You know, the belts are secured, like in terms of contractually, the belts are secured. There's no drama around that. The fight can happen. And that's what people missed out. It's the strategic asset. Hearn is out in the cold because he lacks a strategic asset. When he gets one, and he should, that should be his sole focus now. You know, all of this undisputed, Kate, no, no one cares. Right? No one cares. He needs to get himself a, a Canelo. If Jamal Charlo wins, he needs to get himself a Jamal Charlo. Although I saw Charlo on the scales, he was so fleshy at 167. I, I don't know if he can take what Canelo's going to give or if he's got that boxing ability to stay on his toes for the whole fight. But I really want Jamal Charlo to win because I think it's a great story for boxing. But I just saw him on the scales and I was like, this might be another Caleb Plant situation. But uh, So let's come back to this. If Hearn doesn't get strategic assets... Saudi's out to him. And so his assumption is I can go anywhere in the Middle East. And it's like, well, no. Because you, they think, everyone thinks the same way. Where's the strategic asset you're bringing to the Middle East? He hasn't got one. So boxing fans, you have to look at it like this. They're not spending money on boxing because they care about boxing like you do. They don't. <laughs> they don't care about boxing. If... If they could secure F1 assets, they'd have F1 assets. If they thought world rallying was a valuable asset, they'd secure that. That's why they got golf. Golf was a strategic asset. That's why they invested over a billion into football, because football is a strategic asset. And that's the aim, to own these strategic assets. So by 2030, people are talking about Saudi Arabia as, as a nation on the international stage. Like, this is essentially what this is. This is, this is just a supercharged marketing budget to build the name of Saudi Arabia. 
Yeah. And people didn't understand that. You signed Ronaldo. Ronaldo was a strategic asset. I don't know what it is. 200 million followers on Instagram. The same with Neymar. They know what they're doing. Right. They know what they're doing. So they're not just going to... So let me get... <laughs> so if you look, I don't know what the whole card is for Fury and Garner, but you've got Fury and Garner. You've got Bacoli versus Takam. You've got Wardley versus Adelaide. There isn't a British promoter that would have put those three fights on one card. There's not one British promoter that would have done that. The Americans might have for a pay-per-view show. There's not one British promoter that would have given you that depth of card. And I don't even think that's it. So there's going to be more layers to that. This is the difference. The Saudis won't rip you off. Like, it's against the religions, against the They're not going to rip you off. Like British promoters do. Like we've been getting ripped off for ages. And <laughs> the chickens are coming home to roost now. So the guy that says he was a global promoter is now on the outside looking in. No strategic assets. And seemingly no way to acquire them because he's burnt so many bridges. And there you've got Frank just quietly plodding on the background knowing that he's got one strategic asset left and he needs to milk this. Because after Fury versus Usyk... Boxing's kind of done. There isn't a fight that the public care about after that. But I want to just make this point. So as boxing fans, just remember this. The Saudis don't care about fans. They don't care about boxing. They don't care about you. They don't care about podcasts. They care about strategic assets. If this podcast was a, a strategic asset, they'd have bought me out. That's it. If you understand that, you'll understand everything the Saudis are doing in sport. They just want strategic assets. They can get the Champions League final in Jeddah or Riyadh. Done. You get the World Cup final in Saudi, done. Do they care about <laughs> Yeovil versus Macclesfield? No. Do they care about Brentford versus Fulham? No. They care about things of strategic value. That's why they bought Newcastle, because now the Saudis are involved in the Premier League. They get to see how the Premier League works. And that knowledge they take from the Premier League, they go and apply to their own league. That's what you're going to see. They are not stupid. So just look at Fury Usyk as buying an asset that is valuable. And people will always have to talk about Undisputed happened in, in Riyadh. You know, you had the rumble in the jungle. Everyone talks about that. The thriller in Manila. Everyone talks about that. Um... In boxing circles, the 80,000 at Wembley, not quite as globally understood. But yeah, people talk about Pacquiao versus Mayweather in Vegas, um, Hagler versus uh, Leonard. And then you've got Fury versus Usyk in Riyadh. They'll always have to say Riyadh. When you look up that fight 10 years from now, it will say Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. If you understood how much it costs to get that, you'd understand that this is actually really smart marketing if you take that five to ten year view this is really cheap for them so that's what i'd say about the business side of this like there's little bits i've heard um hearn's calls not getting answered anymore um the kind of shuffling that's happened uh behind the scenes in the saudi court because like different people have different levels of power at different stages so it's always about presenting the best business case here we're gonna do this fury versus and garner thing yeah, people are interested in it. Crossover, we're going to bring boxing fans and MMA fans together. Okay, 
So that's a bigger fan base than just boxing. Yes, like that idea. Run with it. And then after that, we can do this Fury versus Usyk thing. Yeah. Then that's us, that's us done with boxing for now. Yeah. Then we've got to build our own program. That's where Joe G comes in. Joe G is a strategic asset. Yeah. You've got a former Ring Magazine trainer of the year there. That's a strategic asset. Take his knowledge. He'll build something up. Upskill the Saudis. Bang. Won't do this boxing thing. We want to win medals. And at some point they will. Yeah. They're not stupid people. These are guys with MBAs from Wharton, Harvard, all of that. Saeed Business School. They're not stupid people. Don't, don't assume they'll buy any old rubbish like we do as boxing fans. Because they really won't. But let's just talk about this, the, the kind of belt embraces around the fight. So what do we know? So we know that the fight's been agreed. So basically they've just been told, take it or leave it. They've gone, we better take it. There's nothing else on the table. Um, promoters have gone, it's risk-free to us. We're going to get our cut. We're good. We ain't got to do nothing unless we choose to. We're good. Saudis are like, we've got full control over this. We're happy. So everyone's happy with that. So it's like, we know it's going to happen in Riyadh. When? Well, that's a big if, because let's say Fury gets cut, then kind of all bets are off. And the challenge is to get it in before Ramadan. So that gives us just over six months, I think, until the fight needs to happen, which is a fair enough window, I think. I don't see it happening December 23rd. I think if you look at the age of both men, um, Usyk more so, he just needs rest, man, like, like he he took some he took some punishment against Dubois before he stopped him, and he's been in camp for so long. I think you probably just need to rest, family. Like remember, Ukraine's still happening, so he he probably does need a break. I know we're going to talk about Fury having an easy fight against Ngannou, but he'll still have to work hard because I mean it's a fight, so he's going to need some downtime. Then how quickly can you get back up spinning? Because let's say was it the fight at the end of October. And then even by the time you get back to the UK, it's early November, you want two weeks to rest, you ain't going to be ready in four weeks. So I would say the earliest the fight could happen is probably early to mid-Feb. And that's the window. Um, beginning of Feb to the middle of March is probably the window you're looking at for the fight to happen if it happens. Any date before, that's unrealistic. Any date after, that will clash with Ramadan and there's no point. So... That's, that's really what I see happening. Um, I'm not going to do anything until... Because I, I trust the Saudis generally. Like if, if they say it's happening on this date in this location, that's what I'll believe. And I'll wait for the first press conference and then I'm all over that. But generally, um, I'm cynical about these things because we've been here before. You all remember the video. Get up there, my boy! You remember that? When, <laughs> when Fury started calling out names he shouldn't have done. And we've, we've been here. Fury versus Joshua's sign. Uh, Fury versus Joshua. Well, actually, that one too. That's been signed. Wilder versus Joshua's been signed. All these fights that have been signed. And that didn't mean anything. So let's just wait. But the fight will happen because, like I said, it's a, it's a strategic asset and it needs to happen. And I think the promoters know if you mess the Saudis around now... Boxing's done in the Middle East. They'll just shut that down. And there's nowhere else to make money. Because, like I said, after this fight, it's done. And the cupboard is bare after that. And people are going to say, well, you've done a whole pot about Fury versus Usyk. You haven't said who's won or who's going to win. 
the fight the fight's not well maybe had a press conference yet so we'll come on to that at another point but i just wanted to just reiterate that let's just retain a healthy level of cynicism until we get past fury versus Ngannou. if Usyk shows up in the ring after that fight then you kind of know it's it's on because now they're promoting a fight like Usyk's not going to mess around for the sake of it so i'm okay with that to be honest and i'm just happy that it seems to have happened with no faffing around yeah now from a business perspective i don't know who fury has to pay i don't know if he's still paying that 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 plus 971 tax if he is that's on him um frank's got to eat bob's got to eat seemingly everyone's got to eat mchennessy's probably still got to eat there's a lot of people eating off that check but i imagine this is probably fury's last obligation to the world and I can see, if he wins, I can just see him vacating all the belts and going, I want to fight Joshua and I'm done. I can see that happening, actually. Um, as for Usyk, I think Windows would draw. I think Usyk would be done. Like, his body's taking an absolute shellacking. The camps, because he, he's not a naturally big man. Like, there's only so long you can take the, the nuts, berries and juices before it starts to affect your physiology. So I think he'll probably be done after this. He may jump in on the Joshua fight if Fury doesn't want it, but that'll be it, to be honest. And that'll bring a curtain down on this era of boxing. Like, all them kids that were born in the 80s, this will be the end of that era. And then it's the, the 90s baby's turn, if, if they've got anything left. And so that brings me to, to where we're at with boxing now. So, whenever you listen to this, today's Saturday, and... There's a show at Wembley, uh, it's a matchroom zone show, and there's a show at York Hall, there's, which is a Sky, and a Sky and Boxer show. And they're both terrible shows. And I say that considering that there are a lot of people on those cards that I like, but they're shows that don't make any sense. Like, someone has to explain to me why on a Saturday night I'm going to give up my weekend to watch a load of kids who are unproven on both sides. Um, you, could, you could slice and dice that card any way you want. Well, both of them, in fact. And you're not going to get one good card. You're not going to get one good fight. I think... Um, I'm trying to think of the, the two people I paid to watch, Caroline Dubois and Ellie Scottney, are the shining lights on these cards. But I don't understand, like, what, why, what, why are they having to anchor this? They're not ready, and it's not what they've asked for. Why are they having to anchor this? And I think it's a cheap way of the promoters to be doing this, if I'm being honest with you. But it reflects how bad boxing is at the moment. So I was listening to Ring Talk last night. Um, I actually really enjoy seeing Steve Goodwin with his chest puffed out again. Um, you know, he's, he's come out swinging. Cause I remember there was a point where Steve was like, what's the point? What are we really doing here? Where's boxing going? Um, the board aren't helping us, the talents drying up. And here's what I think has happened. And here's why I think Steve is happier. The gap between what's on TV and what's on a Goodwin show has closed to the point where it's a toss of a coin. On some of those shows, some of those Telford shows, 
yeah? Those Telford shows, those Stoke-on-Trent shows are no different to what Steve would pull on. And I think Steve has seen that and gone, well, if that's the case, then I can sign some of those guys and I can make them focal points of things like Box Mania. And so you're seeing Steve signing guys like Zach Chelly, which I think is a good signing for Zach. I think you know, he's 25. It's mad to think um, seven years ago I was cornering that kid in the ABAs. But Zach is 25. He's still young. Loads of experience. And all he's ever needed is guidance. And I think Steve can give that to him. Uh, I'm happy that he's got guys like Sean Earls, um, Adams in the corner as well, Barry. I'm glad he's got those guys because I remember talking to Sean. And I just said to Sean, you just need a good case study. And I said, one is going to come to you eventually. And I, I like him because Sean Earls is a, a progressive mind when it comes to training. And I like that. Like, I like people with progressive minds. I, I, the state of mind guys always strike me as being quite progressive. Yeah. Um, whack Brian G in there as well, actually. Um, they always strike me as being really progressive guys. And good people too. And I think that would be good for Zach. For him to get some structure to what he does. Because he's got all the drive and enthusiasm in the world. I just don't think it was directed in the right places. And he doesn't leverage his pedigree enough. I'll come on and talk about pedigree later. But he doesn't leverage his pedigree. And he's done a lot of good things in the Lamb. And he needs to lean into that. And realize a lot of these guys haven't done that. And so it's okay for Zach sometimes to box. Just as much as it's okay for, for him to bang out and swing sometimes. But I'm happy, I'm happy for him. Uh, Steve's also signed Yusuf Kamari. I'm just a big Yusuf Kamari fan. How do you summarize what happened with Yusuf? So Yusuf was with Steve before. And then he kind of got sucked into the Dillian White situation. But I don't think he broke his contract. I think his contract had just ended. And Dillian said, why don't you sign up? And here's a lesson for people, right? Get yourself a manager that can get you fights regardless of whether they're on the show or not. Because Yusuf's career has kind of mirrored Dillian's. Because when Dillian was on top, Yusuf could do whatever he wanted on any show he wanted. And then as that star started to fade, there was less of a need for Yusuf Kamari. His manager just didn't have the same leverage. So get yourself a manager whose leverage is consistent regardless of anything else. And I think he's learned that lesson. So he's back with Steve. I think Yusuf is one of the most entertaining fighters in London. And I don't see why he shouldn't get opportunities now. I just think he's a good kid. I wish him all the best. Um, and I know Steve's got some more coming through. And I think people will now come to Steve because they've realized I'm as well fight at York Hall if I'm going to fight at Telford Leisure Center. So why not? Um, so we're, we're back to the golden age of, of Goodwin, man. So good luck to Steve. Um, so I was listening to, I was listening to those guys on Ring Talk, and I think it's generally accepted the standard has dropped, and that's why the small hall guys are more bullish and confident because the overall standard of boxing shows is poor now. I think, look, you got Warrington versus Wood on the what's that, the seventh, and then after that, what have you really got in terms of like young talent that we're looking forward to seeing? develop and grow there isn't anything you can't name me someone who's a guaranteed world champion and sustainably so to the point where we're all looking for billy joe to come back so the standard of boxing in this country right now is poor and it comes from there are three elements 
for me that are driving this decline in British boxing. Element number one, we just don't have the, the talent coming through, right? Um, kids are walking into gyms and being taught by social workers. Essentially, that's, that's it. Kids are walking into gyms being taught by social workers, so they end up fighting like social workers, right? Um, and because most gyms have these kind of social worker types in them, the aggressive kids, the rough kids, the street fighting kids, the kids who will challenge you, get asked to leave the gyms. So they end up walking around the street. No one's bringing those kids in and turning them into good boxers anymore. And a lot of guys don't know how to. Right? That's a harsh reality. A lot of people don't know how to do that. So that's the first element. The second element is we have no idea how to build a fighter. I'm going to just say three names that I've watched come through and... At various points, I've thought that they were the real deal. And then I've seen the development, and I'm going, nah, I'm going to walk back from that. Dalton Smith, Adam Azim, and Dennis McCann. I've watched them, and I'm going, yeah, these kids will do it. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that they're being trained the same way, like hamster wheel style, because it doesn't look like there's a real critical analysis of where they need to fix things. Because they're talented. Like, I don't think our fighters are any less gifted than other countries. I just don't think we develop them. And that's the fights they choose. That's what happens in the gym. That's what happens outside the gym. I don't think we develop guys in the same way. Look, they're about to unleash this kid. What's the kid's name? Kumel Moten. So they, they say this is the, the new Devin Haney, essentially. You know, one of those kids that gets famous from the Mayweather gym and then turns pro at a really young age. But look at Devin. Yeah, look at Devin. Multiple belt world champion, started knocking about at 17. How is he able to do it? Now, I'm not saying that every American 17-year-old can do it. We just don't seem able to do it once. And I think that points to a, a deeper problem in, in British boxing. Right? So they're the two, first two elements, right? We don't really have the talent and the development in the amateur system to create quality. Once they turn pro, we don't seem to know how to build them into sustainable world champions. We don't have that. And the third element is they're not interesting enough. If I asked people, who's the most interesting boxer right now? If I gave you options and I said, I put David Adelaide top of that list, I don't think anyone would really dispute that amongst the kind of guys who are coming through. Adelaide's the most interesting guy. We saw the guy playing the drums. We've seen what he did with Fabio Wardley. We see his interviews. He's the most interesting guy. He may not be the most talented, but when he's on screen, you watch. Why is it that no one else seems able to do that? I say the same about Sonny Edwards, actually. When Sonny Edwards is on screen, you watch. And I give Sonny credit because he gets it, right? He gets it. He knows that... The only time he can focus on his talent is in the ring or in the gym. Outside of that, you can be Sonny Edwards and the people will take it how they want. I think there's too much of people holding back. Like, I don't want to give the fans this. I don't want to give the fans that. And so the fans are like, cool. We're just not going to be interested in you. So if, if you look at Saturday's show, um, look at the York Hall show and look at the Wembley show. 
Who's the most interesting guy? That I'd say it's Jamie Shakiva. Jamie TKV is probably the most interesting guy in terms of someone who just puts stuff out there that's linked to boxing and also not boxing. It's him. So I'm like, what the hell? Why isn't everyone else carrying the load? I see some of these young boxers have other people managing their social media account. Why? Why? Why have you got some 35-year-old man managing your account if you're a... If you're a woman, that's one area where, if I'm being real, I respect Ellie Scottney because Ellie jumps on her own thing. And, you know, come fight night, you're looking for the Ellie Scottney tweet. That's the real shame about tonight is that we don't get the Ellie Scottney tweets. But boxing in this country is in a dark place. And I said it right at the beginning of the show when Fury versus Usyk is done, boxing's done. And so I've got to look at myself. As a person, I've got to say, hold on. Am I addicted to boxing? And if this is triggering to people who've overcome addiction, apologies. Um, I don't think there's a better analogy because genuinely sometimes I feel like our relationship with boxing is akin to addiction. And it's almost like it's better to get kind of high than it is to get properly high. And we've done that. We've kind of just allowed the standard to, you know what I mean? The product has just been diluted and cut, right? But we're still like, as long as we get to, to take in our fix, as long as we get our hit, it is what it is. And that's real crackhead behavior. Like crackheads, look, if they see crack dust, they'll take that. Do you know what I mean? Like, and we're, we're, we're becoming that. And I'm saying as fans, let's fight that. Let's not be addicts. Let's not be addicted to this to the point where we can just get abused by promoters. Let's start calling these things out for the trash that they are. Because if we don't, and if we don't vote with our feet, we're just going to get more of this. Because whatever anyone says, and I'd say this, if, if Ben Shalom was here now, I'd say this, that card he's putting on on a Saturday night, that's a Wednesday night card. That's a, if I fancy a few beers after work, I'll go and watch that. That's not a Saturday night show where you're charging me, whatever it is, like 90 quid. To, to sit in a seat that I could normally just watch for 40. That doesn't make any sense. Sky could easily absorb the cost of that show and make it more fan-friendly by having accessible ticket prices. They chose not to, so that's why there's still tickets for sale. It's not going to be packed. And that's going to be embarrassing for them. Um, the same with Wembley. You still want to buy tickets for Wembley? You can. Like, that hasn't sold out. Nowhere near selling out. Expect the, the upper sections to be topped off. Because it's not, you know, the fans are letting you know this ain't good enough. We're in an era now where you've just got to put these kids in against each other. You know, Nathan Heaney should be fighting Linus Adovi. He shouldn't be fighting Denzel Bentley. Like, this is the problem with British boxing. So, huh, yeah, <laughs> you all thought I wasn't going to give Frank a kicking. November 18th. We have a show in Manchester, a Queensbury show in Manchester. So, first things first, A, before that kid from the Midlands gives me a kicking about being London-centric, right? I'm 100% in favour of boxers travelling the country. I think it's important. I think it's important that you are seen in a city. I think it's important you put that city over in your interviews and say, I've had a great time in Manchester. All of that good stuff. I believe in that. Here's what I'm going to say. You're going to give me a card that's got Denzel Bentley and Isaac Dogbo on it. And you're going to put them in with shitty opponents. 
don't give a monkey's what anyone says. They're shitty opponents to me. That's what they are. And not inherently shit. Like Nick Ball isn't like, a, he's not. But Nick Ball isn't Navaretti. Don't care what anyone says. He's not Navaretti. He will never be Navaretti. And that's how we get to see Isaac in the UK. Like not even a Lee Wood, not even a Josh Warrington, not even a Michael Conlon. All who he deserves to fight, by the way, considering how he's been treated in this country. Remember, this is a kid who 10 years ago was ABA champion. This is a kid who 11 years ago was robbed in the Olympics. This is a kid who since then has forged his own career and become a WBO world champion, a legitimate world champion from this country, produced by this system. And this is how we treat him. We just have him as potential fodder for Nick Ball. Why? I think it's dog shit. I, I, I do. I think it's disgusting. I think it's a disgrace how Isaac's been treated. And I want him to win for that reason. For the lack of respect shown to a man who British fans should be cheering to the rafters because here's a man who never compromised. Never shucked and jive for anyone. Never, never played the game. Just went in there, fought hard. Every fight he fought in, entertaining. And I don't see British fans showing him that love. He gets put in with Nick Ball. Jesus Christ, is this how bad things are? And then Denzel versus Nathan Heaney. Nathan Heaney's done nothing in his career to deserve a fight with Denzel. How many years does Frank want to keep Denzel at British level? Like, I've never seen a guy held at British level this long. And people say, yeah, but he fought against Janibek for the world. That was a last-minute thing. Like, yo, we need someone. Where's the progression? Where's Denzel's WBO European belt? Why doesn't he get to sit around and wait for someone to... I mean, he doesn't get the same treatment Anthony Yard does. And I'm torn on this because I love Denzel and I love the fact that Denzel is one of the faces of BT, uh, TNT boxing. I love that. But I'm also conflicted because I'm like, kick him on. Kick him on. He needs that fear. He needs that pressure of... Uh, they think this guy's better than me. Let me prove myself. He needs that. So I'm not happy with that. But I said the same thing about Dan Aziz, where I'm like, why would you set Dan up to be fodder for Joshua Boatsy? Although I think Dan wins that. Why would you do that? But people seem to have their own agendas. I'll, just, but I'll say it again. I hope, I hope Isaac beats Nick Ball, and I hope Denzel stops Nathan Heaney. And after that, I don't want to hear any Hamza Shiraz talk. They need to talk about Denzel fighting for a world again. There has to be a plan for that. I, if I'm Eddie Hearn, to be honest, I'm raiding Queensbury now. That's what I'm doing. Like, he needs that now. Hearn, Hearn the, now you need the Isaac Dogbos and the Denzel Bentleys, Eddie. You better offer these guys whatever money they're asking for. And if you're going to make another transfer, you might as well steal Dev Sarni as well. Like, if Frank Smith is so gaff-prone, that he's disrespecting essentially the fan base Hearn has spent his whole career cultivating, by the way. You know, Eddie Hearn always wanted to look like the working class man, look like he worked down at Ford in Dagenham, but with the silver spoon in his mouth. He wanted to represent that aspirational working class Essex demographic that Frank Smith slaughtered. In one interview. Dev, Dev ain't dropping you in it like that. I do. I think, I think, I think if I'm Hearn, I'm just getting that checkbook out. And I'm saying, 
Who are the guys who are making it happen for Frank? Let me take those. I'd be signing Adelaide. I would. I'd sign Adelaide. I'd sign Bentley. Um, I'd sign McCann. There are a lot of them I'd sign. If I, I'd just aggressively sign and go, if nothing else, let me weaken my opponent. But I would. I'd put whatever. I'd say, Dan's, what do you want, man? <laughs> whatever you want. Bang. There you go. Do the same with Dan Aziz, actually. Dan. How many fights record you got left in you? If it's five, cool. Yeah, five fight deal. Here's your money. Yeah, by the time you're done with me, you ain't gonna need to ever fight in your life. That's what Hearn should be doing. Because I'm tired of seeing people being set up to fail. And that's what they're doing with Denzel. Because once he deals with Heaney, they're gonna start talking Hamza Shiraz. And all this time, they're using Denzel to make other people's careers. Like, who's making Denzel's career? I mean, at a time where the middleweight division is in flux, why not let him win a world title? Let him be the man. But, you know, what do I know? But that's what I'd say. Overall, the sport's in a, it's a horrible, horrible place. Um, horrible, horrible place. And, you know, you can look at it from any angle. The, the in-ring product is garbage. The talent development's garbage. We're all blasé about doping now, which is garbage. Um, it's generally pretty poor. And the only reason people are still talking about boxing is, like I said, it's addict-type behavior. Yeah, well, you know, it's better than nothing, mate. It's better than nothing. Yeah, 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 I need more of it. going to watch it. going to sit at home and watch it tonight. Why? Yeah, well, if I don't watch it, I'm not going to know what happened. So that's okay. You can go out and do something else. You know, you can go and, you know, interact with women. Have a few drinks, go and lift some weights in the gym, just go and be social. I don't know. You can do loads of things. Watch the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, but it's boxing, mate. Yeah? It's boxing. My hardcore. My hardcore. Go watch it. Stop. Honestly, stop. Until, until, until boxing shows enough effort to demand your time, and go and live life. Just go and live life. Go and enjoy yourself because you're just going to end up watching dog shit. And then expecting other people to, to have watched it and being disappointed when they didn't. Because I don't even, I won't watch this. I say I won't watch it, but you might see me on TV at your call. So I don't know. Like, you know what I'm like. I'm an addict. I, I have issues. So I don't know. But what I say is, yeah, we're in a, we're in a dark place right now. And that Usyk Fury is like the, the rubber stamping of this era. And that's it, done. Yeah, we can all move on to another era of the dark ages where people are boxing in Merthyr Tidville and I don't even know, Penzance Village Hall and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> in my lifetime, we had to go and watch boxing in Bournemouth. <laughs> you let that penny drop. <laughs> On that note, let me tap out and say have a great weekend, guys, and take care. <laughs>